we have Dwayne speaking today. And, and one thing I've learned about speaking is sometimes bringing God's word is a burden, but there's always a blessing in it. I've grown so much from speaking, and I bet Dwayne could say the same. And I've heard a preacher once say, if you're not growing, you're dying. So continue to grow. Let me pray for Dwayne as he brings the word. Father, thank you for Dwayne and his willingness to to teach and and, uh, be obedient. And I just pray for him as he brings our word that his words will be your words and that we will will be receptive to hear them and apply them to our lives. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Glad to see each one here this morning. There are a lot of people coughing and hacking and under the weather. Um, just so many people that I learned about in the last couple of days. Uh, Kyle and Caitlin. Uh, Kyle is, I mean, they're okay, but their kids are having a time of it. Um, Vicky is going through some uh, bad things. She's coughing real hard. Uh, so lift, lift some of these people up. Uh, people that you know about and uh, people that you notice are not here today. There's just a lot of, there's a bug going around, a lot of people dealing with respiratory issues. So um, if you know of someone that could use a little help with something, well, don't hesitate to do that. Um, now, of course, Heather had a heads up what I was going to talk about this morning, and she preached the sermon right there in the bulletin. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is, that's good. Heather, and uh, it always amazes me some of the things she comes up with to put in the bulletin. Also in the bulletin, we're talking about Darren coming next week. Uh, if you if you got the text blast, the group text, uh, talking about on, on Thursday, uh, the elders spent time fasting and praying, and Darren joined us in that. Uh, if you joined us in that, thank you. Uh, fasting was optional. I, I, I must admit, I'm, I'm not, I don't do very much fasting. I'm not much, I don't do that much. So I just did part of the day. Okay, I didn't do the whole day. I did part of the day. And uh, it got to be evening. Darla says, what do you want for supper? I said, I don't care, just a lot of it. <laughs> and, and so we had some really good soup for supper Thursday evening, and I really, I really enjoyed it. But we do ask you to continue to pray uh, for Darren as he's here next week. You know, uh, when, as, as we were going through this Thursday and, and we were spending time praying and thinking about Darren being here, I kept thinking about the book of Revelation. The first three chapters of the book of Revelation, the Spirit speaking through John, has a message for the seven churches. And the message for each church is different. So I'm thinking, okay, we're asking the Spirit to speak through Darren. What does the church at Sycamore need to hear? And that's what we're expecting. Now that can be kind of sobering at one level. Another level can be pretty exciting. So we do ask you to continue to pray. Uh, pray for safety for Darren as he travels. Sounds like the weather's going to be pretty rough next weekend. Uh, he comes in late Friday evening. Uh, Saturday, we, you know, we have a sign-up sheet, and, you know, we're not asking you to convene some major summit with him. Darren just likes to visit with the folks, you know. He'd like to talk to you. So if you have a few minutes, and or if you have a chance to, why, um, just... You know, either sign the sheet or call me or Forrest or Levi or Kyle, and we'll make a time for you to get together. Also, he will be in the adult Sunday school class next Sunday morning, so uh, you're welcome to join us with that in, in, uh, during the Sunday school hour. 
Okay, so this morning uh, we are back in the book of John. Uh, we took, took, uh, we stepped away from the book of John for a time there, going through Advent and the Christmas season. And now we're back in, ready to pick up uh, John chapter 6. Well, uh, John chapter 6, of course, is feeding the 5,000. Jesus feeding the multitude. Now, there's, there's just a lot of things to talk about here as we get into this. Um, in the first place, there are only two miracles that all four of the Gospels record. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, they're, you know, they kind of take, um, there's, in some of the, some of the other Gospels, there's more detail, there's more miracles, there's more things that Jesus did. John takes a little bit of a different tack on, on some of this, on how he approaches this, and there's a good reason for that. As you read through the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament is pointing to, pointing to Jesus. When you get to the New Testament, and you read the four Gospels, it's like, wow, it's just, it's kind of an overload. All of this, uh, about Jesus' life on earth, his ministry, what he does, so forth and so on. And then when you go past the Gospels, go through the epistles, the letters, uh, the instructions that basically tell you, uh, you know, this is how, uh, this is how a Christian should live, this is what a Christian should do, uh, this is how the early church operated, this is what a church should look like. And so when you get past the Gospels, there's all of this, uh, instruction and encouragement and teaching and then to, finally you get to Revelation and talks about how it will all end and, and Jesus will come um, triumphant. So, But as you're going through the Gospels, there's just so much information in here all about Jesus' life. Now the, uh, the Gospels, they all, all four of the Gospel writers, they can't take a little bit of a different tack. Uh, Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. Uh, and Jesus presents, you know, uh, Matthew talks about the lion of the tribe of Judah, and that is Jesus. So Matthew is presenting Jesus as Israel's Messiah. Mark is presenting Jesus as, um, uh, uh, as a faithful servant, a uh, faithful servant of God, faithful servant of the people. Luke, the physician, he presents Jesus as the Son of Man, Jesus as man. John is a little bit different. John presents he talks constantly about the deity of Jesus. John is constantly, as he's going through his writing, he is saying, this is God. This is God. And that's, what Je- and that's how John is presenting the gospel. Jesus himself, in the, in, in the book of John alone, seven, diff- seven different times, Jesus proclaims, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the vine. So forth. There, there's seven times he proclaims this. This, this is hearkening back to when, Mo, or when God revealed himself to Moses, Moses said, who are you? God said, I am. I am that I, I am. I am the great I am. So when you get to the book of John, here is Jesus proclaiming seven times, I am. So John says very plainly, this is God. And that's how he presents uh, his writing, his presentation of Jesus. So uh, we come to um, John chapter 6 here. And um, this, this miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000, this is the fourth miracle presented in the book of John. Like I said, some of the other Gospels uh, actually uh, uh, record more miracles, more parables than John does. But John uh, says this one needs to be written down. Uh, the first miracle, of course, in chapter 2, he turned the water into wine. 
Uh, the second miracle in chapter 4, he healed the nobleman's son, and it was at a distance, which is something that hadn't been seen before. Uh, the third miracle, uh, he healed um, the crippled man at the pool, and he did it on the Sabbath. And that was to draw attention to that, to, to how he was treating the Sabbath. Now, chapter, uh, so then when we get to chapter 6, here he's going to talk about, he's going to record the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Chapters 5 and 6 really have the same pattern. Uh, both chapters start out with a miracle. Jesus performs a miracle and then gives a discourse. Then he talks about what the kingdom of God looks like. And either before, during, or after that discourse, then there is sentiment stirred up among the religious elite, among the Pharisees. we got to find a way to get rid of this guy. Where they start making plans, they start plotting to kill Jesus. So that pattern repeats itself in chapter 5 and 6. But uh, we're not going to get that far in chapter 6 today. I'm just going to, I just wanted to go through verses 1 through 15, which is basically um, uh, the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Now, there, there's, some, there's several things very unique about this miracle where he feeds the 5,000. Um, first of all, we, gotta, we have to talk a little bit about 5,000. Now, uh, it, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about 5,000 men. Well, Matthew kind of opens that up a little bit. He kind of lets the cat out of the bag. He says, 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. Now, uh, we're going to get into this in a little bit here about where all this crowd comes from. But these, these people are traveling to Jerusalem because the time of the Passover is approaching. So in some cases, it is just the men that go to Jerusalem for Passover. Most of the time, it is the whole family. It's mom and dad, one or two or five or six kids, uh, grandpa and grandma. And uh, Aunt Minnie is probably going along too. You know, there's more than just one or two people traveling together. These are family groups that are traveling. So most Bible scholars, uh, knowing um, you know how Hebrew culture works, knowing what family structures were like at that time, most scholars will agree that this crowd that Jesus feeds is from anywhere from twenty to twenty-five thousand people. You know, it's five thousand men plus the women and children. So there's twenty to twenty-five thousand people in this crowd that Jesus is feeding. Now. Um, also something that we need to talk about, you know, uh, we get down here and we talk about the five loaves and the two fishes. Well, when I was a little boy, and this is one of the very first uh, Bible stories that, that I remembered that I heard about, you know, when you're, when you're in Sunday school or your mom or your grandma, you're sitting on their lap and they're reading Bible stories to you, 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 you learn about Noah and the ark, you learn about Joseph and the coat of many colors, you learn about Daniel in the lion's den, and you learn about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Those are some of the very first Bible stories you hear and remember. At least that's true in my case. But I could, it always kind of struck me, five loaves of bread, how could, any, how could one little boy eat five loaves of bread? Because to me, a loaf of bread's about this long, you know, about this square. No, that's not what it is. And even if you think about mini loaves or muffins or dinner rolls, it's still five loaves and two fish. Seems like quite a bit for one little boy to be carrying around his lunch, but you need to you need to put it in context of what the society is, what the culture is at the time. These people, uh, mostly rural people, you know, they they didn't have a lot. They grew barley. They grew barley. They crushed it. They ground it. You know, they they ground it into flour, 
And when they baked this barley, it probably wasn't as, a, uh, as much of a loaf as a cracker. Now, I like crackers. You know, through the Christmas season here, we, you know, these round crackers, and I put a big old dollop of dip or spinach dip or whatever on them, a cheese log or whatever, and I can eat several, you know. So, so in context here, what you really have, this little boy, his lunch was probably five crackers and two pickled fish. And that would be a, that would be a typical meal. Fish were preserved by being pickled or dried, and it's probably easiest to pickle them, you know, to pack into a little pack and take it with you. Now, I see some of you kind of going, ooh, you know, if you don't like pickles, well, you may have a problem here. <laughs> but that would be a typical lunch. Some crackers and a couple of pickled fish. Probably, you know, not very big. Shad or, uh, uh, pardon? Sardine. Yeah, maybe sardine, big sardine. But, but it, we're here by the Sea of Galilee, so that's probably where these fish came from. They probably came out of the Sea of Galilee. And that's how so many of the people, the disciples themselves, that's how they made their living. They caught fish. That's how they made their living. So, you know, we need to think a little bit about Hebrew culture here as, as we go through some of this to kind of keep some things in context. So we're talking about 20,000 people. We're talking about a typical lunch of a few crackers and a couple of pickled fish. And that was it. Okay, so uh, let's jump into the text here. Um, starting uh, chapter 6, starting verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Okay, now the Sea of Galilee, we need to go back here and, and uh, give a little background. Uh, if you look at a map of, of Israel, of, uh, you know, of course you have the divided kingdom. You have Judah in the south and, and uh, Samaria in the north. But Jesus has been spending a lot of time in the north. And the reason he did he has done this is because here we are at chapter 6 by chapter 5. Uh, Jesus and the disciples, uh, they know that John the Baptist has been executed. Basically in Jerusalem, in, in Judah, in, in Judea, the heat is on. You know, they're after Jesus. And so Jesus, he's keeping God's clock here. He knows it's not time yet. It's not time for him to go to the cross. It's not time for these things to happen. So he leaves. And he spends a lot of time uh, preaching, teaching, healing in the north, up around Galilee. Uh, Capernaum uh, is, is pretty much his base up there, and that's a city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So he's spending a lot of time up in there. Now, we also know, not from, not from John, but we know from uh, Matthew and Mark, that Jesus has sent the disciples out two by two and sent them out on a preaching, teaching, healing mission. And uh, they have come back. So uh, some time has gone by here. And they are, um, you know, they're, they're wanting together. They're wanting to get together, rest, report to Jesus, talk about what they did on their trip, on their, on their, on their teaching trip. Uh, verse 2 says, uh, well, the sea, okay, the, the sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. By the time John is writing this down, um, you know, at, at the time of Jesus' birth, we, you know, we read the Christmas story about Caesar Augustus put out a decree. Well, in, about, in A.D. 14, uh, Jesus would have been a teenager about this time. Caesar Augustus died. And now the emperor, the Roman emperor, is Caesar Tiberius. Well, these emperors, of course, they're really humble, you know, non-assuming men. So they run around naming as many things after themselves as they can. And the sea, the name of the Sea of Galilee has been changed to the Sea of Tiberias. And so by the time John is writing this down, he's basically making a footnote here. Now, if you go back in the Old Testament time, it was called uh, Gennesaret. At some point, it got changed to the name Sea of Galilee. 
so Tiberius changes the names it after himself, and as time goes by and Tiberius fades into the rearview mirror, it goes back to being called the Sea of Galilee again. But at the time John's writing this down, it is actually the Sea of Tiberias. And so he's kind of making a note here of this to, to point out, you know, there's no confusion here. This is what we're talking about. Uh, so Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So he and the disciples load up in a boat on the west side. They're going to the east side. They want to get away from the crowd. The crowds have been following Jesus. Uh, they've been, you know, the, they, they, they know that this guy is healing. He's healing the sick. You know, make no mistake about it. This is what's drawing the crowds to Jesus, the miracles that he is doing. Uh, word spreads like wildfire, and this guy can heal you if you, uh, you know, of all kinds of things. And so that, that's what's drawing the crowds. Uh, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now you go back to verse 1, after this. What does that mean, after this? Well, it means some time has gone by. Now we know that the Passover is coming up. Uh, you know, We're in the Passover season, and that's why all these crowds are moving down, are moving along the Sea of Galilee. They're heading for Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Now, in chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5, it talks about there was a feast, there was a Jewish feast, if that was Passover, that means a year has passed from the beginning of chapter 5 to the beginning of chapter 6. If it's the Feast of Tabernacles, we know that six months have passed. But chapter 5 is not clear about which feast it is. But we can assume at least six months have gone by since the events of chapter 5 until we come to chapter 6. We do know in, in that time period, whether it was six months or a year, Jesus has sent the disciples out. They have come back. And in the meantime, Jesus has been ministering preaching, teaching, and healing in this north north part of the country, up around Capernaum and, and along, up and down, all around the area of the Sea of Galilee. So now the Jews have come back, they have gathered, and they get in the boat, they go to the east side of the sea, they go across the sea, but you know there so the crowd sees them leave, and they just actually walk around the shore. They walk around the north shore of the sea. And from the boat, they're able to see them. They see this crowd, in the meantime, there are more people moving through on their way to Jerusalem, uh, on, the way to, on the way to celebrate Passover. So there's a big old crowd there. By the time they get to the east side, and it says Jesus went up on the mountain. Now, I'm, I'm not an expert on, uh, on uh, geography in Israel, but if you look at a map uh, up at the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, there's a mountain range up there, and it's called the Golan Heights. Now, if you, if you don't know much about the history or the geography or anything else, that name will ring a bell. You know, everybody knows something about the Golan Heights. Well, that's that mountain range up off the east northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. So that's where Jesus goes. He wants to go up there and sit down with his disciples, rest, take some time, talk about what's going on. You know, how did your trips go, this, that, and the other. But Jesus knows this isn't going to happen. He knows this isn't going to happen. He knows what's coming. Now the Passover, verse 4, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. See, Jesus knows what's going on here. Jesus knows what's coming. And here he, he wants to test the disciples. He wants to test the crowd. 
He wants to, you know, make it known there's things going on here that you don't understand. There's things here I'm trying to teach you. You need to pay attention and understand what I'm talking about. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Okay? A denarius, a denarius basically was a day's wages. So 200 days worth of wages, what, seven, eight months? Of, if you had everything you made in this most of a year period, it wouldn't be enough to buy bread to feed this crowd. It would only be enough to give them a taste. It still wouldn't feed them. Now, number one, we don't have the money. Number two, there's no place to buy the bread. They're on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a very rural area. All there are are small villages. There's no big towns over there until you get quite a bit farther south. If you go south far enough, you come to a town or to a city called Decapolis. But where they are, there's no place to buy bread. We don't have the money. If we did have the money, we couldn't buy the bread because there's no bread there. This we're we're in a humanly impossible situation. Now, a couple of the other gospels, Matthew and Mark, they the the disciples tell Jesus, send these people away, send them away while it's still daylight. Now that is compassion. They're not being mean. They're trying to be compassionate to the crowd. Said so while it's still daylight, while they got time to get somewhere to find something to eat, send them away. Because once it gets dark, we're out of luck. There's nothing we can do, you know. Okay? But Jesus knew better. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, uh, the other Gospels will tell you that uh, they set them down in groups of 50 and 100, you know, with little aisles between them, and uh, that way they could pass through and, and pass out the food. Now, you know, Jesus, Jesus is doing this. He said, he said, how are we going to feed these people? He's doing it to test the disciples. Now, you have to stop here and, and think a little bit about what the disciples have been through. What they have seen Jesus do. They have seen him heal these people. They have seen him minister to them. They have seen the miracles that he has done. But yet, they're still thinking physically. They're still thinking temporally. They're still thinking humanly. Just like we would do. You know, we have, to, we have to change our thinking to know and understand what Jesus is teaching. When, when, he, said, uh, uh, when he said to, uh, uh, to Philip and Andrew, uh, Andrew comes to him and said, There's a boy here who has five loaves. This boy has five crackers and two pickled fish. But what's that for a crowd like this? Now, Andrew and Philip, the right answer would have been, Lord... We've seen you handle these things. We know that you've got it. We're just going to sit down and let you do it again. See, that would have been the right answer. But they were not thinking the way Jesus wanted them to think. They're still thinking temporally. They're thinking humanly. And they're thinking, we're in a tight spot here. We don't have enough food for 20,000 people. And Jesus says, tell them to sit down. Sit them on the grass out here. There's this you know, nice grassy slope. We're going to have a nice picnic. And basically that's what they do. They set them down in 50s and 100s. Now, verse 11, this is it. This is the key right here. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Now, you've got to think about this. Jesus is doing a miracle. He's creating food out of his hands. You know, he just, food's just coming out of his hands. He's passing it out to the disciples. They're running up and down these aisles, passing it out. 
Now, you got to think about this. This, this young boy, uh, when, when I was hearing these Bible stories as a young man, I always thought this young boy was the hero of the story. Yeah, you can have my lunch. Take my lunch and pass it out. Well, now, <laughs> as you get older, you think a little differently. Have you ever noticed that? But now I kind of think about when, when Andrew comes up to this boy and says, you got any food? And, I'm, you know, if I were that boy, I'd say, well, my mom packed my lunch. What's the matter with you? You know, <laughs> I've got my lunch. Leave me alone. You know, that's, that's kind of the way I would tend to think now. But, uh, but they bring these firecrackers and these two fish to Jesus. He gives thanks for it. Just this little bitty bit. He gives thanks for it. He says, thank you, God, for providing. And he just starts doing this. Food is just created out of his hands. That is a miracle of such great proportion we can't comprehend it. That's why John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's why this is only one of two that all four Gospels record. Of course, the first one is the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. But so right behind that is this one, where Jesus is feeding this huge crowd. That it, it, It's an amazing thing. Not only that, but they had when they had eaten their fill. Now, in that day and age... You don't eat your fill every day. It's probably very seldom that you actually are able to eat your fill. Because think about what has to go into a single meal. You know, they don't have refrigeration. They, they can't run to the freezer and grab something out of it. Every meal has to be prepared. They have to grind flour, bake bread. They have to say, did you catch a fish? You know, did you, catch a, did you go out and catch a chicken or a duck so that we can dress it and eat a meal? Every meal is, a, you know, hours of preparation. So eating your fill, number one, it's a luxury. doesn't happen very often. And here they are. Think about what they're eating. They're eating bread. They're eating crackers, you know, barley bread. It wasn't grown. It didn't come from a seed. It never touched the dirt. They're eating fish that never swam in the sea. Jesus is creating it out of his hands. Just think about how that had to taste. And you get a little indication of that here in a few more verses. It probably tasted kind of like manna. God created manna to feed them as they were in the wilderness. Jesus is creating bread and fish out of his hands. It, it's, it's, it's a thing that they've never seen. It's a thing that they is just really blowing them away. It's hard for them to comprehend. And it has to taste good. They're sitting there eating their fill. I bet some of it's getting tucked into the folds of their robes too. Okay. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now, not only is this a massive miracle, all these people being fed... They're filled. All they want. They don't want anymore. They're not hungry anymore. But yet when they gather it up, there's 12 baskets gathered up. Not only is it a, a miracle on a huge scale, it's a very precise miracle. Why is there 12 baskets left? There's 12 disciples. He fed the 5,000. He provided for the disciples. They can stick these in their backpack. they got food for days. So not only is it a, a, a miracle on a large scale, it's very precise. There are 12 baskets left. The disciples have their provision 
for some time to come. Okay? So then how do the people react to that? Uh, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, I'm not going to turn back to that, but make a note of it. Look it up later on. If you look at Deuteronomy 18, uh, verses 15 and 19, verses 15 through 19, talk about this. But verses 15 and 19, this is what the people remember. Uh, Moses said, there's another prophet to come after me, and he will feed you. Moses fed him in the wilderness. God, through Moses, uh, you know, provided the manna, led them, fed them. And then now Moses in Deuteronomy 18 is saying, there's another prophet coming after me. So when after the people have seen this, they participated in the miracle. That's another thing that makes this very unique. Uh, most of the miracles that, that Jesus has done, it, it, it's happened to an individual or to a small group, and the crowd around it is witness to it. In this case, the crowd is participating. They're eating the food. So after they have participated in this miracle... Then, then they say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They're remembering what Moses told them. They're remembering what Moses wrote down. Okay, then verse 15. Now this is where uh, things take a turn and Jesus is trying to teach a lesson here. He says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus understood. He saw they're coming. They're going to, they're going to try to make me king. And he, he disappears. He goes into the mountain. He hides from them. Now, if there was ever a time for Jesus to assume the role of earthly king, this is it. He's at the height of his popularity. Right here's 25,000 people ready to make him king. If they, were have, if they would have gathered him up, set him on their shoulders, took off for Jerusalem... There would have been many, many more people joined them before they got there. They could have rolled in Jerusalem, swept away the Roman garrisons that were there, and they could have made Jesus king of the nation right on the spot. That's not what Jesus was about. That's not what Jesus wanted to do. What the kingdom he's talking about has nothing to do with being an earthly kingdom. People don't understand this. So now you go back. The, the, there's three things we need to bring out of this, out of these verses here. You've got um, you've got the fickle crowd, uh, and I say fickle because you need to go a little farther on in John uh, when Jesus gets into the discourse, uh, like I talked a little bit ago about the pattern, same pattern in chapter five and six. When Jesus gets into the discourse of chapter six, when he starts teaching and preaching and saying, "This is what the kingdom of God is," they start to say, "These aren't the words we want to hear," and they go away, they disappear. The crowd disappears. As long as he is uh, giving this appearance of he can, he can rule the world, he can fill our needs. He heals us. He feeds us. He takes care of our temporal, physical needs. We want him to be our king. When Jesus starts teaching, that's not the kind of king I am. They disappear. They go away. You have the fickle crowd. You have the unbelieving disciples. They have seen all these things. They have been with Jesus. They've seen the miracles. But yet when they're faced with a big problem, a big crowd, without enough to eat, what do they do? They act temporally. They act physically. Uh, they, 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 they fall back on what they know. The, the, the faith, the, the trust that they've seen Jesus do these things, it, it slips away. They forget it. And so they start thinking, 
uh, in a temporal fashion. When you get to verse 15 then, uh, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, that's a false coronation. Jesus said, I'm not a king of this world. That's not what I'm here for. The kingdom I'm talking about is something different. And so he, he does not allow them uh, to, to make him this earthly king. Now, as we go on into far, farther into this chapter in the next few weeks, there's, you know, we'll come back to some of these things and talk about some of these things that have happened, but I don't want to jump too far ahead into that today. I think, I think um, what the lesson we need to take out of this today is um, it's too easy for us to think temporally, to think physically. Um, you know, we, we want to think about it, and, and, and you have to be careful of this. There's preachers and teachers that will tell you this. If you trust in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you know, you're not going to have to worry about how to fix your furnace. You don't have to worry about how to put gas in your car because Jesus is going to take care of your physical needs. Well, it's not so. We live in a broken, sinful world. And Jesus didn't come to give us a perfect life in this world. We do not and we will not have a perfect life in this world because this is not a perfect world. It's a broken, sinful world. The power of the gospel, what we need to know, what we need to learn from the teachings of Jesus, the power of the gospel is to prepare us for the coming life. Because in the coming life, uh, we will have everlasting peace. We will have everlasting perfection with him, with Jesus, in the coming life, in the, in the kingdom of God. That's the lesson we need to take from this. We're living in an imperfect, broken world now. The power of the gospel prepares us for a coming perfect life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story. And um, as I fumbled and bumbled my way through it, I just pray that we would hear the message that you have for us. It is uh, your words. It is your teaching uh, that is for us. It is to prepare us for the glory that you have for us. And I just pray, Lord, that uh, we would go from here this morning knowing that um, our trust in you, our belief in you, that is what brings us into your presence. That is what brings us salvation. Just thank you that we can gather and study your word and just pray that it would be a blessing to us every time we open it up. We just ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.